Belief is hard. Belief is not an easy thing. Belief is a difficult thing. Madeline Engle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, as well as lots of other novels, um, but I've read A Wrinkle in Time, it's amazing. She's someone who loved Jesus, someone who loved science, and someone who loved like, bringing these two things together. She very wisely was quoted to say this. Those who believe that they believe in God, but without passion in their hearts, without anguish in mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, without an element of despair, even in their consolation, believe only in the God idea, not God himself. Believe is hard. It's hard to live a life of belief. I mean, every human from Adam and Eve to the disciples to us, like we've all had doubts. And in our current time, doubt is king. Certainty is the devil. Someone who's completely certain, that's very suspicious. They're dangerous. After all, it was complete certainty and a cause that led to World War II, that led to the extermination of millions of people. It leads to cults. It leads to horrors. And doubt is a way that we aren't humble, but it's a way that we express our humility. It's different than humility, but it's a way that we express to others that we're humble. Doubt is a way that we tell others we aren't one of the crazy ones. Doubt is helpful in that it can keep everything kind of at arm's length. If we're kind of involved in something, but not really involved in something, that leads us to a cool distance. Like, I haven't really bought in, haven't really jumped in with both feet. If I'm in doubt, that means I can keep doing whatever I want, and I don't really have to change as much as I probably should. I mean, doubt in a government means less people vote. We keep a cool distance, the same problems continue. Doubt in a partner's love for me doesn't mean that I'm gonna press into that partner's life wanting to get to know that person more. It means like more of a cool distance. But then there's another side of doubt, and that's a side that Angle talks about here, that belief in something just inherently is a difficult thing. See, doubt always initially creates a distance, but it need not do that. I think doubts can bring people together. I mean, what is a church about? What, what is a church except for people who kind of struggle through our doubts together? Like, that's kind of the definition of the church. If left, doubts, if left by themselves, if, if aren't dealt with, really create that kind of distance and keep that distance between us and love. Doubts, though, if they're engaged well, can actually bring us closer to love if we engage them well. So if engaged properly, this is, it seems weird, engaged properly, doubting God can actually bring us closer to God. And this is what God is teaching us today. God wants us to use our doubts to bring us closer to him. We want to let our doubts dictate our lives. We want to give doubts the level of certainty to rule our lives. But that's not what they're for. I think we should doubt our doubts. So how are we going to do that? Well, it all starts and ends with Jesus. In this first uh, section here, we have this really weird story of the transfiguration, as it's called. Um... What a weird and wacky story. This is so, like, theologians, we still don't really know kind of like what in the world's going on here. Uh, the disciples obviously don't know what in the world's going on there, and they were, they were literally there. And we can't cover all of the details of this. And so the stuff that I leave out, if you're like really wondering, what's the deal with that? Um, you can send them along to redeemermcr.com slash ask. And that's just an a, a anonymous way to ask questions, and I reply to them through the email, the weekly email that we send out. So if you have questions, yeah, definitely send them along. Um, but because it's so weird and we don't understand it, much like the disciples, we don't know what to do with it. So we kind of like don't really do much with it. Like, wow, that was weird. All right, next story. But then the next story is like, you know, someone possessed by an evil spirit. So it gets weird. It stays weird. 
I, I, I get that people don't know what to do with it. I get it. You know, um, some people say, oh, maybe it's like a shared hallucination, or maybe it's a story that the disciples came up with after the fact to kind of like bolster their message. Um, but all these ways are just like you know, that's not how Mark tells it. And Mark was 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 there. He's the one telling the story. It, 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 all these other ways of explaining away what's actually clearly before us are things that make it easier for us to live the way we were before. It, it doesn't disrupt our normal life if, we, if this didn't really happen. If this really happened, this is disruptive. This is like, if this is real, like what does that mean for me in my life? It'd be easier if this wasn't real. But if we believe this, if this is like our Lord, are we kind of crazy? Like, are we kind of like one of the weird ones that we're afraid we're gonna be? Is Jesus kind of crazy? I think what we have here is Jesus disrupting the disciples' view of him. Jesus will not be tamed. He's not going to be used to be put in a nice box, only be taken out in times where we really think we want to engage with him. These select disciples, there's only three of them, they get a glimpse of who this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth really is. And the way it's described is white clothes, described as if like light is like coming from him. Elijah and Moses are there, and sometimes like they're talking, like, they're not like just, they're just talking. Like that sounds like a very normal, blase way of talking about these two people who were dead now talking with Jesus. This is really mysterious, and we can't understand it completely. And at this time, up until now, through all of Mark's gospel here, Jesus doesn't appear glorious. He's just some normal guy, some normal kind of crazy guy. He doesn't look like who he actually is. And what Peter, James, and John are seeing is what the power of the kingdom of glory coming looks like. They're getting a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, who is the Lord. And Moses, he's a representative of, of the old covenant, of the law, the old promises that God has made. Moses is representing a promise that God made to his people that one day he will rescue them. That is now being fulfilled as Moses is talking with Jesus. And Elijah represents the prophets who are looking forward to the time where God will actually rescue his people. And that promise is now being fulfilled in Jesus. Both of those big, massive promises that God has in the Old Testament are now being fulfilled as Jesus is showing himself who he really is. And then we also get the Father speaking, a voice like thunder that's coming from heaven. That, that means like God the Father. It's not you know, someone with a loud, booming kind of, kind of voice. Um, we get the Father. And that we get that the Father has an affirmation of love and authority. He says, this is my son whom I love. And then he says, listen to him. My son whom I love is about identity. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's son. Now, we're all God's children, but Jesus is like God's, I mean, there's like God's sons, and then there's like God's son. And Jesus is like God's son. He's our elder brother, the one who's gone before us, who's done all the stuff for, on our behalf that we don't have to do, that we get all the benefits of. And obviously, he, he shares all those benefits with us. So this is uh, the father saying, this is my son whom I love. And he says, listen to him. The Father like, couldn't have been more clear. It's pretty like, obvious. I wonder what God the Father really wants of us. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. It's important to the Father for us to listen to Jesus. Being about God means listening to Jesus. These are God's words. It's good for us in that we're given a path to follow. Thank God we are. Otherwise, it would be left to us to figure our own lives out. But this also gets our backs up because we want to listen to ourselves. We want to do our own thing. We want to listen to other people who make our lives easier for us. But God thinks it's important for us to listen to his son. This is not revolutionary information. It's not surprising. The, a surprising uh, doctrine of Christianity is that the Father really wants us to listen to the Son. Like, that's obvious. But what's actually revolutionary is if we actually follow through. That's really revolutionary. 
So we cover Jesus, we cover Moses, we cover Elijah, even God the Father. What are the disciples doing here? They're class acts, aren't they? So Peter speaks first. It's very on brand for Peter. That's what he does. Uh, surprise, surprise. He says something dumb because he doesn't know what's going on. He's, he's ignorant. That's his thing. He responds in fear. Basically, he, he says, we should put up these shelters. And then in, in brackets in verse 6, if you have the NIV, they put it in brackets. It says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. He's kind of like, I have no, I mean, we all know people who are like that, who are, if they don't know what to do, they're just like, oh, I just need to say words. And words just come out, and they're like the dumbest kind of words you can think of in the moment. This is Peter. He's, just, he's like us. He's not you know, some kind of super Christian or something. And what's with the shelters here? What, like, what is Peter talking about? Like, build houses, like, on this mountain? Like, what, with, for Elijah, for Moses? What's the deal? Well, the short version of this, and if you want to know more, you can ask me about it. The very short version of this, Peter thinks that the end has come. Like, the end of all, like, of all time has come. That this is like the, the, uh, when Jesus will bring his kingdom in glory and in power and will overthrow the government that's oppressing them and all this other stuff. Peter thinks that the end has come. That, and that means that Jesus doesn't have to go through all that suffering that he talked about in the previous chapter that we talked about last week. So Peter is stoked about this. He's like, oh, right. Oh, we just get all good stuff. We don't have to go through all the suffering. Remember, Peter was the one who rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, I have to go through suffering. So Peter's like, cool, shortcut to glory. I'm all about that. It wasn't about that. So he's like, so we're going to build these shelters that are kind of like altars, and like this is going to be the beginning of, of the end of, of everything good. And he gets ahead of himself because he's led by fear. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. If you want to know more about that, definitely ask me or, or go to that site. I think really this whole thing is like an episode from Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen that? I've never actually seen the show, but I know like it's basically someone who's the boss of the company and pretends to be like a normal dude and like comes along people and then there's like this big massive reveal and people gasp. I, what it's, I, I found out when I was re researching Undercover Boss, things you do as a pastor, uh, research Undercover Boss. I was I found there's another show on a Discovery the Discovery Channel in the U.S. called Undercover Billionaire, which is like Undercover Boss to the next level. I don't know if you've heard about this. I think it's showing now. Basically, a billionaire is trying to create a company from scratch that will uh, make a profit of a million dollars in like less than 90 days. It's like the whole thing. But all his team members, nobody knows, he's actually has billions of dollars. Um, and so he's just acting like he's a regular kind of entrepreneur, startup guy who kind of knows what he's doing but doesn't really know what he's doing. And at the end of the series, he's going to reveal himself like, oh, I actually have like loads of cash. Um, I don't know why they do it that way, but that's what's going to happen. Um, but as it goes with those kind of big reveals, whether it's that or like home shows where there's like home renovation, people gasp. Like they, they, they can barely believe their eyes or they start crying or they even look away like they can't handle it. it that's a symbol of disbelief. Like it's so good. I can't, I can't even believe this thing to be real. Like that's my boss. He's undercover. Oh my gosh. Or that guy has a billion dollars. I thought he was like one of us, or whatever the thing might be. People, like, they'll, they'll hold like, their hands over their faces. That's like a symbol of, I can't believe this. And this is Jesus' reveal. Only, unlike the undercover ones, he's, he's told them who he is, like, the entire time. They just don't believe it. But now he shows them, and they can't handle it. They can't process it. They're like, Jesus is actually not like us. Jesus isn't like a man, but like a really good man, he's like something completely different from us. This is actually God. What? And no wonder Peter is like, you know, blabbering on about whatever he's blabbering on about. And when God reveals himself, it's always an overwhelming thing. We, we can't believe it. People are in awe. People are in fear. And sometimes people in awe and fear like say and do stupid stuff. So what should, what should this propel us to do? 
Like, why is this in our Bibles? It's not just for people who lived a long time ago in a different place. This is for us. As, um, these are God's words to us now. Why is this here? Well, I think, uh, at the very least, I think we have to take God the Father's words you know, as if they're real. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So what does it mean for us to listen? Oh, there's undercover billionaire guy. Sorry, I forgot to show how rugged and tough he is. Uh, but, so I think, um, I think it means listening to Jesus which really kind of first starts with being overcome with wonder. Being overcome with wonder, which means not acting first, not speaking first, but being wonder first and listening, seeking to understand. And when we see Jesus, when we really see him, we're gonna forget what we were talking about, whatever the thing was, whatever the thing's going on in our lives. And we will stop seeing him as useful, as a way for us to progress, a ways for us to get a 5% better life. And we'll see him as beautiful. Listening starts with wonder. So how do we listen to Jesus? Well, thankfully, Jesus has made it really simple. And I've heard this said before. I, I love this quote, that complexity is the enemy of obedience. So thankfully, Jesus has made something really, really simple. It's not complicated, though we complicate it. It might sound trite, but there's a difference between trite and simple. That Jesus has actually um, created this thing called a Bible and all of these words in here. We can listen to all these words. We just have to, have to actually spend time with it and read it. It's actually really, it's just as simple as reading or listening if you're an audiobook kind of person. So read the Bible. Jesus wants to speak to us. He wants us to listen to him. He has so many things to tell us. God wants us to listen to him. So don't make how easy something might be uh, and how blasé about that, might, how it might be with coming to the word, a reason to not do it or ho-hum about it. Like our God speaks to us all the time. We hear from him every time we open up the word. These are his words to us now. The glorious risen Christ has things he wants us to know that only he can say. I mean, where do we expect to be if we don't listen to him? Like what will be the quality of decision-making in our lives if we don't listen to him? What will we believe about ourselves wrongly if we don't listen to him? This isn't, again, it's not a matter of like, here's a way to make your life a little bit better because sometimes it makes your life in some ways more difficult but it's a necessity for us because we're a mess <laughs> and Jesus pursues us in our mess. He has lots of things to tell us. So surely that's worth more than you know, the extra 20 minutes of sleep or whatever kind of time you might get instead. So Jesus shows himself who he really is. And what we find next uh, is something us religious people really like to do. We like to argue, especially those who are like more like heady kind of theological worlds. So doubting in itself is not problematic, but how the disciples go about it is actually a problem. And so what we learn from the disciples is how not to doubt. They give a really good uh, kind of way of how not to do this thing called doubting. So let's just kind of run through this real quick. This glorious vision of the curtains being pulled back and the real Jesus being showed who he is is seen. And the very next thing, the way that Mark constructs these stories, the very next thing we see uh, is a large crowd arguing, uh, the teachers of the law arguing with them. That's not by accident. Mark is putting these two together for a reason. Jesus asked them what, what they're arguing about. Uh, and there's a situation that they can't handle. Jesus, Jesus does not chide them for their lack of performance. He doesn't chide them for their lack of passion. He chides them for their lack of belief. They're doubting, not believing, but they're also not going to Jesus with it. They argue amongst themselves, like, oh, well, maybe we need to do this, maybe we need to do this, or maybe you should have done this, or whatever the argument is about. We don't know specifically what the argument is about. But religious people, we're dishonest with our doubts. We're very bad at doubting. 
Most of us somehow, unfortunately, have learned along the way that it's not okay to doubt. That that's a bad thing. That's not what people who believe do. Or that people who really believe, who that, that's who we really want to be, they're not the type who doubt. They're completely certain 100% of the time. And that is just so wrong. It's not just wrong in my experience, and I'm sure your experience, but it's actually not what the Bible says at all. If you read the Psalms at all, you'll find people who are like riddled with doubt, burdened with doubt, but they go to, to God with it. And the Bible is full of people doubting. And so we've learned, though, that doubting is not a good thing. So we hide it, we stuff it down, but important things in our lives always have a way of coming out. And if we're stuffing it down, it is going to come out in some way, as it does for the disciples, arguing. Now, Jesus doesn't like this, by the way. He's exasperated. I love like, the way he's kind of with an eye roll. He's like, oh, how long do I have to put up with you guys? I kind of feel like Jesus is looking exactly like this. Like, oh my, <laughs> these guys again with their things. So the disciples aren't honest with their doubts, with each other or with Jesus. They're just like this theological tiff. Now, sometimes a symptom of doubt is argument. It could be theological discourse. That seems weird, but it's true. I, I knew people in seminary we're getting a world-class education. We're paying a lot for this world-class education. But there were people who the reason why they were there was because they wanted to really flee God's mission. And the easiest way to do that is actually either become a professor in like a grad school for Bible college or go into a church. That's the easy way to do that. The easiest way to hide from God or from what he calls us to is the church. Even better if you can lead one, by the way. Because on the outside, you look really, really good. Oh, he's part of God's mission. He's really doing that thing. But inside, the rest of your life, you're like, ah, oh, since I do that, that means I, have, I can do whatever I want, or I can kick my feet up and do whatever I want. You know, for some that I knew in seminary, their time and energy was about learning the Bible, arguing about the Bible, but never actually being obedient in their lives to what the Bible says. It was like creating hypocrites. We learn about Jesus, but we don't actually follow Jesus, because following is an, is an action, it's an activity. We learn about his mission, one that we're supposed to give our lives to, as the previous uh, week we talked about. But we, we learn about that, but we don't actually do that. We don't actually follow him. We think we need Bible studies, but if we move on from one Bible study to the next Bible study to the next Bible where is the time put into actually putting that into practice? We need to make space for that as a church. This is why we do what we do on Sundays and throughout the week with missional communities. We make space for uh, as like small and what feels probably often ineffective and lame offerings as they are. We want to make sure we make space for putting it into practice. I'm a, I am a complete theolo theological nerd, probably more than all of you put together. I love like, getting into like nerdy theological stuff. I love teaching the Bible. It's a very easy thing for me to do. An easy life for me would be just to create like every night of the week, Bible studies, you know, come fill people's heads up and just kind of do that and only do that. I would love that and an aspect of that. But that's just not obedience. It's a very religious way to flee what Jesus calls me to, which is fully formed disciple, not head on a stick disciple. It's like arms, hearts, feet. And I don't like that because I just want to argue like the rest of these people here who Jesus chides for their lack of unbelief or their lack of belief. So if the previous point was about listening to Jesus, this includes his words, but not just having his, his word wash over us. Like listening to Jesus means we actually like listen and embody and understand and we listen with our life, doubts and all, and follow through. So if you are anxious about doubt, if you feel like uh, you're stuffing it down, man, can we just stop this whole fake thing? Can we just say, like, I don't really believe this or I have a difficult time believing this? 
Like, I get it. We fear what people are going to think about us. I totally get and understand that. But we all have these, we're all in the same boat with this, actually. I think the thing is, I'm the only one who feels this way. I'm the only one who doubts God's goodness or whatever the thing might be. So if I share that, I'm going to be outcasted. But the reality is, you share that, someone will be like, yeah, me too. And we'll probably all be in the same boat with that. We may not have exactly all the same doubts, but we are all doubting. I mean, how much energy do we expend to pretend to be something that we're not? Why do we want to waste that energy? And pretending, does that make us feel better? No, it never gets us to think we want. How much pretending do we do with God as if he doesn't know? God knows your doubts far better than you do, and he still loves you. So let's stop being religious and let's start acting like Christians. Let's be honest with our doubts to teach each other or to each other and to God. Let's tell Jesus when you're doubting. Like, just talk to Jesus about it. Why you're doubting. Read the Psalms if you need help with that. But that's also why we have each other because this isn't something that we have to do on our own. In fact, it's the opposite. We can't do this on our own. You have doubts that you aren't able to handle yourself. You have burdens you aren't able to handle yourself. And you're not meant to. You weren't made that way, which is why we're part of a family, so other people can help handle those doubts with you. Sometimes you need others in your life praying for you. I know I do. The only thing we have to lose is our sense of isolation that comes when we hold on to doubt ourselves. So belief is hard. I get it. It's not an easy process. It's difficult. But let's be honest with our doubts, with each other and with God. So thanks to disciples and um, teachers of the law, uh, we've learned how not to doubt. Now, if you're tracking with me that, sh- that we should share our doubts, the next question maybe is like, how do we do that? And that's exactly where God gets to next, how to doubt. What we find in this last story of this man who's in this desperate situation with, with his child, his son is in a state kind of beyond this father's help, has been in the state for years, an evil spirit has stopped his son from speaking, is trying to destroy him. I don't understand all about that. The disciples can't do anything about it, and the father just wants the best for his boy, and Jesus asks to see him. So the father says, Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus is like, whoa, if I can? Like, did you not know that I just like transfigured myself and showed myself to be this glorious, you know, Lord of all creation to these three disciples, and even this guy like started making shelters and stuff for me? I think it might be possible. In fact, everything is possible for one who believes. Again, it comes back to belief. And the man immediately says, I, I do believe. Help me in. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me with my doubts. So we get this, and then we get this beautiful symbol of resurrection. So the boy is plagued by things beyond his control, ends up seeming to be dead, but Jesus, the one with power, the one with authority, heals him. He takes him by the hand, lifts him to his feet, and he stood up. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be rescued by Jesus. So this is how you doubt. That's how you do it in that story. We bring our lack of belief, we bring our doubt to Jesus, like this man did. Not perfectly, of course, because he's you know, wondering if Jesus is even powerful enough to do it. But we don't argue, we don't stuff it down. We're honest with Jesus where we are. And this man took that top opportunity immediately. And it also shows how doubt and belief live side by side. This man says, I do believe, help me on my unbelief. He doesn't say, I can't believe because I have unbelief. He doesn't say, I can't believe because I have doubts. He says, I do believe, help me in the parts of me that don't believe it. Is Jesus big enough in our lives to help us with our doubts? Or have you given your doubts so much power? Have you given your doubts so much authority that you lean on them instead of Jesus? You know, sometimes what we do is we bring Jesus before our doubts instead of bringing our doubts to Jesus. So we look at our doubts as powerful, and we make Jesus try and fit underneath that. 
What we need to do is see Jesus as powerful as he showed himself to be. And the disciples, uh, as they, they saw then, to see him as powerful and bring our doubts there. And one of the side effects of having doubt being our king is like a really lame prayer life. So the evil spirit, Jesus says, couldn't be driven out because it required prayer. Now, prayer is more than just reciting words. Prayer is a belief that God's going to work. And so also in verse 19, what does Jesus say about these people who aren't able to, to heal this person? He says, you unbelieving generation. So they had a lack of belief and they didn't pray. They didn't bring it to God in any way. They called them unbelieving. They doubted. Since they doubted, they didn't pray. And this little boy was plagued. You see kind of all the add-on effects here. So doubt as king means we won't really pray. And that means we're going to lack God's powerful work in our lives and the lives of others that we love, that we want to see God work in. But this is how it normally works. We go through something hard. We have something impossibly difficult happen to our lives, as many of us have and many of us will have. And instead of bringing that before Jesus, we doubt Jesus. We doubt how he works. We don't pray. We don't ask God to work in his power. And then when nothing gets better, we say, you see, I knew you couldn't do anything. I knew you couldn't fix it. Where are you? What are you doing? But all along, we've been bowing to doubt. We've not been bowing to Jesus. Instead, when we go through difficult times, like for us, for people we love, when we find that difficult, and we will, we bring that difficulty, that doubt to Jesus because we do not trust doubt, we trust Jesus. And as we do, we will be able to pray, though it will be lame, and that's okay. And God will do what he does. Now, it doesn't mean we're always going to get outcomes that we want or expect, but God will work. So I think the takeaway here is for us to doubt our doubts. That means we put doubt in its rightful place before Jesus. If we don't, doubt becomes a kind of certainty. And it's not that we believe and want Jesus to help us in their doubts, it's that we don't believe full stop, and that's the end. So doubts have their place. Actually, they're an opportunity to go to God in our need. They're actually very helpful in our walk. God meets us in our doubts in different ways than he meets us in our certainty. We just know that to be true. He speaks differently. We learn that even if we don't believe, even if we doubt, we can still trust him. That's an amazing kind of, that, that takes faith to a different kind of level. Even when we feel frail, we can trust him. So let's do what this man did. He doubted his doubts. He asked Jesus to overcome his unbelief. So how do we doubt this? Doubts, how, how do we do this? Um, well, we see Jesus as he really is. We look to Jesus. We don't look to our doubts first. We look to Jesus. He's the king. He's the Lord of all creation. He's that glorious, overwhelming, mysterious image of the transfiguration that we don't completely understand, but we know is more powerful than anything else we see. We need Jesus for this. And we also need others for this. We should be okay to talk about our doubts with each other openly, because we all have them. This is not an option if you want to grow. If you want to grow, you have to be comfortable sharing your doubts. If you want to stay stifled, do not share your doubts. Doubts that we keep to ourselves will always hold us back. So we need Jesus to believe in. We need Jesus to heal us. We need Jesus in our desperation, in our doubt, even in our death, to take us by the hand, to lift us up and stand, have us stand on our feet. So I think it's relatively easy for us to identify with the disciples. It's even kind of probably easy to identify with the desperate father, knowing no other way is going to work unless Jesus comes through for us. But we should also identify with the boy here. Because look, the Holy Spirit through Mark, he put these stories together for a reason. In order to doubt our doubts, we look at Jesus as he really is, but we don't look inward. We don't try and rationalize. Uh, we first look to Christ. And one story dressed in this kind of gleaming, white, crazy, supernatural image. And the next story, as soon as people saw Jesus, it says as soon as people saw him, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. And in the last story, 
as, as the little boy, the helpless boy, Jesus sees us as being desperate, being helpless, and he heals us. He takes us by the hand. He sets us on our feet. He enables us to stand. So if we look to that kind of Jesus, there is room for doubts, and there is a way to process them. Now, certainty is different than belief. We aren't called to be certain about our faith, though it's great for us to be certain about our faith, and we should all strive towards that. But what we're first called to is to believe. And believe has room for doubts. It has a place to take doubts. So if you're certain in your faith, that's very helpful, and that's great, and let's continue to grow in that. But it is also, it's more important to believe. Everyone who comes up here may not be certain in all, in all things, but we believe. We carry with us to the table as we celebrate uh, Christ's death. We carry with us all sorts of doubts, but we believe. Isn't it comforting to know that you don't have to have everything all set in order to be able to worship Jesus, to be able to be included in his family? Thank God for that. Jesus died so that we might believe and know him and to live a full life. And that's what the bread and the cup represent, the lengths that Jesus went to to secure our lives in him. And this was even worse than before we were doubting. This is when we were complete enemies. And the body, or the, the bread is a symbol of his body. It's broken for us. And the cup is a symbol of his blood that was poured out for us. And this table is open for everyone who has doubts but wants to put them before Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. You just have to be someone who is believing Jesus. And maybe you haven't believed Jesus before, and this was your first time to be able to, to bring that doubt before Jesus. Take this opportunity for what it is. But if you don't believe Jesus, uh, we ask for you to please not come up, because that's what this table is all about. It's, it's saying, I leave my doubts at this table. I come, I come back, and I believe that Jesus will work. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, we take a bit of the bread that represents Jesus' body. We dip it in the, the juice or the wine that represents Jesus' blood. And as we sing songs together about bringing our doubts to Jesus, we eat. And we do this because Jesus has told us to. He says, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me, because we're prone to forgetting, just as we're prone to doubt. And the reason why we keep doing this is to put doubt in its rightful place. In light of the cross, all our doubts pale in comparison. Where are our doubts in, in light of, the, of Jesus who went to the, couldn't have gone to further lengths to win you to him? Let's put the doubts underneath that, underneath that kind of love. And as we come up, let's take our belief, unbelief with us. And as we sing, let's all say to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, because we all are in that boat. And as we look and see who Jesus is, let's be honest with our doubts together and let's take them to Jesus together. Let me pray.